service. Hey, are you guys proud dog owners like I am? You ever wonder why so many dogs are suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, you know Katherine Heigl from Knocked Up, she's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation. And she says that she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. After doing a ton of research, Catherine feels that there's one place that we can all look to improve our dog's health, and that is their food. Many dog foods can actually create toxins that can be wrecking our dog's health. Okay, and this is true even for many of the premium dog food brands. However, by just adding a few special superfoods to our dog's diets, we can see huge transformations in their health. Catherine Heigl has already done this. She's made a video about it. You guys need to watch this video. It's a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. This worked amazingly for my dog, Dusty. I'm noticing more energy, healthier skin, uh, healthier coat. Dusty's coat looks fantastic. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash disgraceland and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash Disgraceland. Disgraceland is brought to you by Disgraceland All Access. Disgraceland All Access membership is your chance to support the show and get ad-free listening, an exclusive scripted episode every month, and exclusive bonus content every week, plus access to an always-on chat with me and your fellow discos. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about the Sex Pistols are insane. Their lead singer saw rock and roll as a disease that needed to be eradicated and was hell-bent on being the one to put it out of its misery, no matter what. And their guitarist was a sex addict and kleptomaniac who stole wallets, bikes, cars, and more than a few pieces of musical equipment to outfit his band, including gear belonging to rock gods like Keith Richards and David Bowie. They destroyed other bands' gear and slept with their girlfriends. They played a show in front of 500 hardened criminals at a maximum security prison. And they scammed the same system that had scammed them, the working class, for years by convincing the biggest record label in the world to release their controversial music. And they did all of this before the most infamous pistol of all ever strapped on a bass guitar and pretended he knew how to play. And the Sex Pistols made great music some of the most defiant and defining music of the punk era. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Forbidden Flute MK1. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Tonight's the Night Gonna Be Alright by Rod Stewart. And why would I play you that specific slice of loosened French gown cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on November 26, 1976. And that was the day that the Sex Pistols released their debut single, Anarchy in the UK, 
A single that would scandalize and galvanize opposing social classes in Great Britain and serve as a dramatic turning point in the history of rock and roll. On this, part one of a special two-part episode, rock and roll diseases, kleptomaniacs, maximum security prisons, and never mind the bollocks, it's the Sex Pistols. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. The sewer rats weren't just huge, they were angry. The rank smell of the underground clung to their greasy, wet fur. They were kept down there by the things that intended to do them harm. Cats liked to play the part of the oppressor, sharp-witted, quick-clawed nemesis to the filthy vermin. But just because the cats were farther up the food chain didn't mean the laws of the food chain weren't meant to be broken. Violent upheaval was inevitable. The sewer rats didn't want to stay underground forever. They wanted the good life, the cat's life. Post-World War II London was in a constant state of falling apart. So it came as no surprise when rusted sewer pipes ruptured. And when sewer pipes ruptured, rats squeezed their bodies through the corrosion. They pushed towards the light, up higher and higher, until they shot out through a sink drain, gushing forth like dirty water from a backed up toilet. They ran through the kitchen and found their way through a crack in the wall where they scurried out onto the street. There they found a stray cat and the rats were hungry. The cat stood its ground and hissed with menace. Its hair stood on end and the rats could smell fear. And they moved in closer. A low guttural moan came from the cat's belly. The kind of demonic sound a cornered animal makes when it knows its time is up. And then the rats pounced. They ripped up the cat's matted fur with their teeth. They tore at the cat's flesh with their tiny claws. They painted the cracked asphalt with the cat's blood, slicing open its stomach and spilling the contents of its belly on the ground. And only after the rat's bellies were full did they stop. They left the carcasses behind. They didn't clean up messes. They made them. Soon, they were everywhere, in the cupboards, under the floorboards, in the old abandoned air raid shelters. Tenacious little fuckers, harbingers of death and doom, bringers of dirt and disease, plague-written opportunists seeking to exploit a crumbling world. London had already been burned. Decades after the war, neighborhoods like Finsbury Park and North London remained neglected shitholes by anyone's definition. The working class struggled simply to survive. No fridge, no shower, no toilet. And upward mobility? Ha! You were lucky if you remained upward and or mobile. There was no incentive to strive for anything else because if you did, if you happened to escape the Dickensian wasteland of the soul, that place where your mom scoured you with toilet cleaner once a month just to kill off the bugs that thrived on the taste of your skin, you'd never ever hear the end of it. Escaping your fate meant you'd have turned your back on the downtrodden and the marginalized. Fucking middle-class cunt is what you were. And everyone else you left behind would unite with the same shared bond. Boredom, desperation, no future. The whole thing was fucking rotten. In the 1960s and 1970s, those feelings of hopelessness in London just festered. 
They bred hatred and contempt, just like the rats bred feral armies in the sewers. Resentment led to more hatred, and the poor punched down when they should have been aiming higher. All the while, the middle and upper classes continued to turn a blind eye, and the queen continued to sip her tea with hand firmly in glove. And it wasn't just feelings that festered in London. All that rat piss in the water was making people sick. John Lydon didn't know if it was the rat piss that caused the meningitis that nearly killed him at age seven in the early 60s. He was too busy fighting for his life. All that fluid pushing on his brain made him hallucinate, and the headaches made him vomit, and he was in and out of a coma for months. A year later, he left the hospital permanently changed. All the needles they'd stuck inside him to drain fluid had caused his spine to curve. His vision had gone blurry, so he had to try extra hard to focus, which meant he developed an intense, dead-eyed stare. All those hateful Londoners in his neighborhood especially the English geezers who couldn't stand Irish blokes like him. They saw him coming and all said the same. John Lydon looks fucking grotesque. Good. Take a long, hard look, you fascist pigs. Dare you to look away. Especially you genteel bastards. The ones who survive and thrive on the status quo. The ones who are high up that ladder. The ones who stay up that ladder by keeping the rest of England down. For John Lydon, grotesque became him. It was his ammunition. It put all that working class anger, that rock bottom malaise, right in the faces of those people who needed to see it the most. The Prince of Wales seated comfortably in the House of Lords. The so-called street fighting rock and roll men getting their medals from the bloody queen. Grotesque was necessary. Long hair and peace and love. That was someone else's trip. This was hacked up hair, dyed a putrid shade of green. Visible cigarette burns on your arms. You mutilated your head, you cut yourself, burned yourself. Fucking right you did, you bled, you hurt. You were bored shitless, your fashion reflected it. Ripped up shirts, fetish wear, safety pins, it wasn't style, fuck style. This was chaos. The stuffy button down English way of life, it was over. On deck, hate and war. Idle hands weren't the devil's playthings. They belonged to the Antichrist now. It was time for anarchy. And not just in the streets. In the schools, they weren't teaching, they were indoctrinating, brainwashing. Home wasn't any better, and the adults all peddled the same fantasy. The 1960s, fantasy. The 1950s, bloody escapism, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly. What the fuck did they have to do with your life right now in the 1970s? Elvis was a plague, rock and roll was a disease, it was vile, it was airport music, it was over. Someone needed to kill it and trot it through town, flogging its corpse for all to see. These were the kinds of plans John Lydon hatched when, after his father tossed him from the house at 16 because of the way he looked, he found himself squatting in London flats. He lived alongside artists and musicians and pimps and junkies, and his friend, another John, John Beverly, AKA John Simon Ritchie but they didn't call him John or Simon. They called him Sid after John Lydon's vicious hamster. England's economic system, its social hierarchy, it didn't have room for kids like John and Sid. They were too poor, they were too ugly. They put their lives in their hands simply walking down the street looking the way they looked. They didn't look like the hippies or the Teds or the skinheads or the football hooligans. They looked like aliens. Everyone else took one look at the likes of John Lydon, his spine curved, his caustic stare practically psychotic. His green hair chopped to pieces and they just wanted to murder him. 
He looked so different that he was treated as a threat. He didn't conform. He didn't stay in his place with the rest of the working class. He wouldn't accept that fate. And he desired the right opportunity to expose the whole system for what it was. A fraud, a frame, a bloody disgrace. He wanted to scratch all the way to the top and blow the whole fucking thing up from the inside. It's only natural when you're that bored, that desperate, that belittled. You have no choice but to swindle the system that's swindling you. You either do that or you start walking into forbidden places like you're supposed to be there and take what is rightfully yours. Okay, listen, if you're one of the few people out there who's new to podcasts, new to Disgraceland, new to true crime, if you have not already listened to the wildly popular and hysterically funny and informative podcast, My Favorite Murder, hosted by my friends Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark on the Exactly Right Network, then what are you waiting for? You got to check out My Favorite Murder in each episode. They're going to tell you stories about infamous serial killers, cold cases, incredible survivor stories. And listen, these guys are wildly popular for a reason. They have an incredible chemistry. They're hysterical. They're smart as all get up. And you're instantly going to feel like they're long lost friends. They've got great new episodes on the subjects I've already mentioned, but they've got this whole treasure trove of back episodes, including well-known stories from true crime and music history, like the deaths of Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen, the murder of pop singer Selena, and now the infamous story of the cocaine bear. I've known Karen and Georgia since the beginning of my sort of foray into podcasting. They've been heroes of mine. I was on their podcast in March of 2022 to share my hometown story about a prison break party that I attended in high school. Uh, and they told me it was one of their most popular episodes. So you can check that out as well. Listen to My Favorite Murder wherever you listen to podcasts. Brand new episodes drop every Thursday. Hey, Discos, it's Jake here. Thank you so much for listening to Disgraceland. Your support truly means a lot to me, and it's because of you that my team and I are able to make this show. If you want more Disgraceland, if you want more regular interactions with me and the community of Disgraceland listeners, or if you simply want to listen to the show ad-free, go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership, or just click on the link in the show notes for this episode. For just five bucks a month, you can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. You'll also get weekly unscripted bonus content, special audio collections, and early access to merch and events. There are two ways that you can support the show and become a member at disgracelandpod.com slash membership. You can sign up using Patreon and listen to the show ad-free on Apple, Spotify, and most other major podcast platforms. And Patreon members also get access to all the other perks of membership and an always-on chat where I'll be interacting with you and diving deeper into the world of Disgraceland. But maybe you're currently an Apple Podcast subscription listener and you want to just tap into all the bonus audio content and ad-free listening that we're offering. We're also offering this membership as a premium channel on Apple Podcasts. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland All Access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership.
July, 1973, London. David Bowie was glad he had decided to wear a sheer mesh shirt that night. Not just because it complimented his glittery trousers, but because the Hammersmith Odeon was hot. 3,500 people packed inside. Bowie was sweating like a pig. Playing the role of his androgynous alter ego, Ziggy Stardust, he had just delivered one hell of a show, and now he was tired. He stopped to catch his breath. He looked out at the crowd and said, of all our shows on this tour, this particular show will remain with us the longest. Because not only is it the last show of the tour, but it's the last show we will ever do. A hush fell over the crowd, followed by sounds of confusion and panic. What was happening? The last show we'll ever do? The Spiders from Mars followed Bowie's words with a thunderous version of rock and roll suicide. And then, Z Stardust was dead. The audience was distraught. They cried in the streets outside the venue. Little did they know when they went out that night, they would witness David Bowie's last show with Ziggy Stardust. And little did David Bowie know, it was the last show he'd play with his gear. 17-year-old Steve Jones found the security guards snoring when he peeked in the back door of the Hammersmith Odeon later that night. From his vantage point, he could see the band's equipment on stage. Mick Ronson's cream-colored Les Paul, Trevor Boulder's son, Basam. It was all just sitting there. He could reach out and touch it. Jonesy heard a noise inside. Was someone there? Didn't matter. This wasn't his first rodeo. He could play the part if needed, the part of a security guard or some daft roadie, just like Bowie played the part of Ziggy. Christ, Steve Jones loved David Bowie, almost as much as he loved Rod Stewart or Brian Ferry. But Jones wasn't at the Hammersmith Odeon to revel in David Bowie's incredible live show. He was there to steal David Bowie's shit. Jones looked over at Wally and told him to follow his lead. Act like he's supposed to be there. Don't get rattled. Wally was Wally Nightingale, one of the members of The Strand, Jonesy's first band he formed in the early 70s along with drummer Paul Cook. Jones and Wally quickly made their way inside. The security guard's snore echoed through the place and they walked, not suspiciously, but confidently, to the Odeon stage. And then they started loading up their arms with as much as they could carry. They loaded the gear into Jonesy's van outside, some symbols from Mick Woodmancy's drum kit, a microphone that still had Bowie's lipstick smeared all over it, and that sweet bass amp. Jonesy could hardly believe he now possessed something that belonged to one of his idols. It was thrilling, just as thrilling as the time he stole Ron Woods' coat. Well, he thought it was Ron Woods' coat. Jonesy and the rest of the guys in the Strand idolized the faces. They used to take band pilgrimages up to Ron's posh house on Richmond Hill and just marvel at the enormity of it. Sometimes Ronnie himself would even appear at the window and wave. But that wasn't enough for Jonesy. He wanted more than a wink and a nod. He went back to the house on his own and he followed a small path to a wall around back. The wall wasn't that high, easy enough. He scaled it and was delighted to find that the side door was unlocked. He let himself inside, and the room seemed pretty vacant. He spied a small portable TV set in a coat, and he nicked the bolt. He was chuffed to have Ron Wood's coat. Later, when he learned it didn't actually belong to Ron Wood, he wasn't disappointed, because it really belonged to Keith Richards. Fucking A, mate. That's just as cool now, isn't it? It wasn't just pilfered trophies that encouraged Steve Jones to compulsively steal. Part of the thrill of being a klepto was knowing that it was wrong, that he could get caught at any moment. 
The biggest thrill of all, though, that was hearing a news report the next morning about the theft of David Bowie's gear from the night before. He did that. He was the reason the man on the radio was telling that story. It was Jonesy's first brush with fame, and it felt good. Before Steve Jones stole anything, he watched other people steal. Working class people, just like him and his mom and stepfather. Everyone in West London was struggling to get by, and they would never be anything but poor. And there were the haves and the have-nots, and never the twain shall meet. So you really couldn't blame a poverty-stricken family with no hope and no future for sticking a few extra items up their jackets at the grocery store. You saw it happen, and you just looked away. In some days, thieving was literally the difference between life and death. As a child, Jonesy wasn't poor. He was fucking miserable. He could hardly read or write. He had to jockey with his stepfather for his mother's attention. And that same stepfather sexually abused him when he was only 10 years old. He no longer had a safe place in his own home. He felt threatened by that man's presence, and it made him angry, and he had to do something about it. He began to hang out anywhere but home, and he started to steal. And I'm not talking a few extra bags of crisps at the market. First, it was toys, parts for his train set, wallets lifted from pants left in gymnasium changing rooms. Then it was bikes, ones resting against their kickstands outside bicycle shops. Next, it was musical equipment so that his band actually had instruments to play. A twin reverb amp stolen from a band that was opening for Bob Marley and the Whalers. A Sunbird special that belonged to Mott the Hoopla's guitarist. Eventually, it was even cars. And there was nothing like the feeling of popping some Mandy's, aka Mandrix sleeping pills, chasing them with a few pints of beer, and then letting that magical tingling feeling take over your entire body as you slip behind the wheel of someone else's Austin Healy. Well, maybe shagging birds, which next to stealing was an A-plus non-stop addiction for Steve Jones. It was the 1960s and 70s, the golden age of car crime, as Jones himself put it, long before alarms and security cameras in the club. But that didn't mean he didn't get caught. He did. 12 times before the age of 18, he was sent to juvie. He was slapped on the hand. And honestly, he really didn't give a fuck. What he did care about was finding a place where he belonged. It certainly wasn't at home. It wasn't at some halfway house either. And he couldn't crash at his mate Paul Cook's place all the time. The first time he walked through the door at 430 Kings Road in early 1972, he thought perhaps he had found the place he was looking for. Let It Rock was a trendy shop run by Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. They sold modernized versions of 50s era teddy boy clothes that contradicted the hippie fashions that the rest of London seemed to be clinging to. Brothel creeper shoes, pegged pants, draped jackets, but you didn't just buy something and let it rock and then leave like you did at other stores. There was a couch and a jukebox. You could hang out. Malcolm and Vivian were always up to chat. If, like Steve Jones, you were playing around with your identity, a hippie who loved purple haze, a skinhead enamored with a whole lot of love, a hooligan headbanging to rock and roll hoochie coo, you were welcome to do that without judgment. You were free to be yourself, whoever the hell you ended up being. And the cops, on the other hand, weren't about to let Steve Jones off so easily. The summer of 1974 was a rude awakening. His 13th bust was different from the previous 12. Jones was no longer an adolescent. He was now 18 years old, and this time wouldn't be another juvie lockup. This time would be prison. Talk about no future. The band would be over, that's for sure, and they were just getting started. Glenn Matlock had recently joined on bass and he was quite good, even if he was partial to Beatles chords. But unlike the last dozen arrests, 
This time, Steve Jones had something else on his side. He had Malcolm McLaren, an honest-to-God adult in his late 20s, who was willing to vouch for Jones and help plead his case to the judge. Inside the Marleybone Magistrate's Court, Malcolm went on and on about Jonesy's bright future, about how he was going to leave an indelible mark on British society and all that. And that stupid fucker in the robe and wig swallowed Malcolm's line of bullshit like it was a tea cake. It wasn't all bullshit, though. Malcolm McLaren was right. Steve Jones would leave an indelible mark. It just wouldn't be in the way the judge might have imagined. What the judge didn't know was that as soon as he was set free, Steve Jones wasn't going to change. Leave the goody-two-shoes bit to those wankers in the Bay City Rollers. Jonesy was going to take all that anger and all that frustration which he still felt at his stepfather, at all the filthy rich tossers who never had to nick nothing in order to survive. And he was gonna funnel it into a guitar, one that belonged to someone else. Cause just like David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust once sang, the bitter does come out better on a stolen guitar. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. John Lydon did his curved spine, dead-eyed stare move. The one where he leans forward from the front of the stage, the microphone stand propping him up and preventing him from falling straight into the audience. And for the first time, he was the one who felt nervous. Just look at this crowd. Rapists, murderers, hardened criminals, 500 fucking lunatics with eyes wider and crazier than his own, and their teeth. Steve Jones had rechristened John Lydon Johnny Rotten because of his disgusting teeth, but John's pearly off-whites were no match for this ocean of damaged smiles. The inmates at the Chelmsford Maximum Security Prison looked rabid, frothing at the corners of their mouths, unshackled and uninhibited. You only want to be in anarchy until you're performing in front of a prison's worth of real anarchists who would gladly trample your lifeless body to get to the nearest exit. And where the fuck was Malcolm McLaren, their so-called manager? He was safe and sound on the other side of the closed and locked door with all the prison guards. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't risking his life. But he'd risk the lives of his band members. Never mind the bollocks. One false move and they were all dead. To John, Malcolm was no savior. Malcolm didn't rescue John from a fate worse than death like he had with Steve Jones. Malcolm was, to put it bluntly, a thief, just like Jonesy. Only instead of stealing cars and guitars, Malcolm stole the essence of people far cooler than he could ever hope to be. People like John. Call him Malcolm's muse or whatever, but one thing was for sure. Whatever John did, Malcolm wanted to replicate it. When Malcolm changed the name of his store from Let It Rock to Sex and began to peddle all that bondage gear and skin-tight rubber shirts, the more provocative and outrageous the better, that wasn't an original idea. That was all from watching John come in and out of the store, dressed in his own provocative and outrageous way. John's look said defiance, it reeked of nonconformity, a middle finger aimed at the status quo. But Malcolm McLaren, an agitator? Malcolm McLaren was an opportunist. And Malcolm McLaren didn't create the Sex Pistols. What a load of shit. Malcolm did what he always did. Something happened and he reacted to it. The Sex Pistols existed. Malcolm just found a way to make money off of them. He was their manager, whatever that meant, having come straight off that train wreck of attempting to manage the New York Dolls. Jonesy benefited from that little stint. He got Sylvain Sylvain's white Les Paul, 
The one with stickers of pinup girls on it. Malcolm brought that back from New York. It was a gift. John didn't get gifts. John got fuck all. Same for Glenn Matlock and Paul Cook, the Pistols' rhythm section. Not that they were complaining. They just seemed happy to be in the band that played regular gigs and got noticed. Didn't matter to them if they were called the Strand or the Sex Pistols. Well, okay. Glenn was a bit of a mummy's boy, so being in a group called the Sex Pistols did rattle his cage quite a bit. And that amused John to no end. It was a better name than Cutie Jones and his Sex Pistols, which was what Malcolm had originally christened the band back when Jonesy sang lead for a hot minute. But they all knew that Jonesy couldn't be the lead singer. He needed to focus on what he did best, playing his Les Paul like he wanted to snap its neck in two. And Jonesy said it himself. His guitar style was rooted in not knowing how to play. It was all anger and frustration. Just like Johnny Rotten's incredible voice. People write Johnny Rotten off as just some fuck up punk. But he's one of the greatest singers of all time. The legend goes that Vivian Westwood suggested John Ladden as a lead singer because she'd seen him at the sex store a lot and he had that rebellious image and attitude they were looking for. The legend further goes that when she said, check out this guy named John, she actually wasn't talking about John Lydon, but instead his friend, John Beverly, AKA Sid Vicious, but we'll get to him later. One thing was for sure though, when Malcolm and the band auditioned Johnny, the tension was ripe from the jump. Malcolm said, I'm gonna play Alice Cooper's 18 on the jukebox. I want you to behave as if you're on stage and sing along to it. And if you don't, this bloke here next to me, Steve Jones, He's gonna beat the living daylights out of you. Sure, Jonesy was bigger, but John fancied himself smarter. Smart enough to keep the lyrics he was writing hidden from the other band members. Glenn Matlock would have up and quit on the spot if he knew what he was getting himself into. No one was singing about the things Johnny Rotten was singing about. Inciting anarchy, toppling the monarchy, abortions and bodies, and cheap holidays in other people's misery. John Lydon was the consummate vocalist if not the greatest singer in the traditional sets. His diction and delivery were incredible. He sneered, he taunted, he rolled his R's like a proper Englishman but did it with his tongue firmly in his cheek. He took the piss out of the whole charade. Rock and roll, bloated, pretentious rubbish. Rock and roll was a problem and John was gonna do something about it. Don't tell that to Jonesy and the rest of the band. Even though Jonesy popped speed like they were Tic Tacs, the band didn't play fast like the Ramones. Their tempos were slower like the faces, with thick, easy-to-follow riffs blasted from a 100-watt Marshall amp that blistered your ears. People listened. They didn't have a choice, like those inmates at the Chelmsford Maximum Security Prison. Who else but the Sex Pistols would go full Johnny Cash and play a gig in prison? The Clash? No way. The Clash fought the law, and the law won, man. According to John Lydon, the Clash weren't punk. The Clash were a couple of trendy Karl Marx slogans and a slick image. And maybe they were punk, at least in the early days, but they weren't like the Pistols. Nobody was. This was the reputation that the Sex Pistols gained early on. They were loud, they were dangerous. They didn't know what they wanted, but they knew how to get it. Other bands invited them to open their shows because they brought that element of batshit crazy drama that you just couldn't buy. Like Eddie and the Hot Rods, a pub rock band playing a label showcase at the Marquee Club. They got more than they bargained for. John put his microphone stand right through one of the Hot Rod's monitor speakers. And while John was busy destroying other bands' equipment, Jonesy was busy fucking their girlfriends. No band was safe from the Pistols' antics. Fights broke out regularly at their gigs, an extension of the anger on stage. 
Sometimes the brawls were between kids hopped up on cheap amphetamine sulfate and even cheaper beer. Sometimes it was the band themselves, like John and Glenn, always at each other's throats. Glenn, that closet ABBA fan, John couldn't fucking handle it. That tension, it made the band what it was, in both the next evolution and the total destruction of rock and roll. And they also just sounded incredible, like a jumbo jet landing in your living room, to quote Jonesy. They were firing on all cylinders. And it wasn't just other bands and punk kids that noticed. In October of 1976, EMI came calling. Not only the most old-fashioned of all British record labels, but the largest label in the world. They signed the band for a two-year contract. Malcolm did his part. He got paid. Negotiated a 40,000-pound signing bonus. John could hardly believe the irony. How easy it was to accomplish that goal. To be that subversive. If only EMI knew what rotten business John had in store. Now that the pistols were part of the machine, the next step was simple. Light the fuse. Watch it burn. The Sex Pistols' debut single, Anarchy in the UK, was released by EMI Records on November 26, 1976. But it was difficult to find Anarchy in the UK in record stores throughout Great Britain, and not because it was flying off the shelves. Some employees at EMI record pressing plants actually refused to touch copies of the record. The name alone was scandalous. The Sex Pistols was obscene, unforgivably profane. And then add to that the content of the music, its lyrics, and the mayhem the group was inspiring throughout the country. Workers on the EMI line shudder to think. Their reluctance to come in physical contact with little slabs of vinyl with that name on the label led to delays in production and distribution. But not even a week after the single's release, on December 1st, the Pistols got the opportunity to do a bit of promotion on Today, a regional television program on London's Thames Television. It was Kismet. Queen were originally booked to appear on the show, but had to pull out last minute so that Freddie Mercury could undergo emergency dental surgery. And their appearance on the show may have gone well if not for a few important factors. For one, the band was drunk. Jonesy alone chugged two or three bottles of Blue Nun backstage in the green room. The second factor was today's host. Bill Grundy was a good 30 years older than the Pistols and was a walking, talking representation of the old guard. Tweed, suits and ties, thick sideburns, scotch, knee, upper lip, stiff. He was upper class, a fat cat. He looked down on the Pistols' generation as lazy sods, all of them filthy, vacant vermin with no future. They were the bottom feeders, sewer dwellers. Grundy hated them before he even asked his first question. He hated John, his spiky orange hair like a thorny briar patch. He hated Jonesy, brazenly sitting there wearing that t-shirt. The one that simply had a full-size photo of a naked pair of women's breasts. And he hated the circus they brought with them. Four additional punks standing behind where the band was seated. One of them wore a Nazi swastika on his arm and another, a girl named Susie, looked like she'd been plucked right out of a clockwork orange. The whole thing was perverse. Grundy had to knock back a few drinks of his own just to deal with it. And there wouldn't be enough drinks to drown out what happened next. No one, not the Pistols, not Bill Grundy, and certainly not the good people of England, 
would ever forget it. They are punk rockers, the new craze, they tell me. They're heroes, not the nice, clean Rolling Stones. They are a group called the Sex Pistols. I'm told that that group have received 40,000 pounds from a record company. Doesn't that seem slightly opposed to their anti-materialistic view of life? No, the more the merrier. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, tell me more then. We fucking spent it, ain't we? I don't know, have you? Yeah, it's all gone. Really? Good Lord. Now, I want to know one thing. What? Are you serious or are you just trying to make me laugh? No, it's gone. Gone. No, I mean about what you're doing. Oh, yeah? Beethoven, Mozart, Bach and Brahms and all of ours, ain't they? Really? What? Uh, what are you saying, sir? They're wonderful people. Are they? Oh, yes. They really turn us on. Suppose they turn other people on. Well, that's just their tough shit. It's what? Nothing. A rude word. Next question. No, no. What was the rude word? Shit. Was it really? Good heavens. You frightened me to death. Oh, all right. What about you girls behind? Are you worried or just enjoying yourselves? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. Ah, that's what I thought you were doing. I've always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. Well, we'll meet afterwards, shall we? You dirty sod. Dirty old man. Now, keep going, Chief. Keep going. Go on, you've got another five seconds. Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. Go on, again. You dirty fucker. What a clever boy. What a fucking rotter. Well, that's it for tonight. I'll be seeing you soon. I hope I'll not be seeing the likes of you again. From me, though, good night. Malcolm McLaren nearly shit his pants. And for good reason. Sure, Bill Grundy was a closed-minded asshole and it egged the guys on, but they had taken it too far cursing on live television. You have to understand, in 1976, that was a huge deal. Absolute scandal. Overnight, the Sex Pistols were the subject of conversation in every household in Great Britain. They were instantly famous. And this is important. They became famous not for their music, but for what they said live on the air. Thanks to their appearance on Grundy's show, most of the band's December tour dates were canceled. City and town councils held emergency meetings and voted to ban the Pistols from any further appearances. And those weren't the only meetings being held. EMI's chairman, Sir John Reed, a man who, rumor had it, dined with the Queen herself, sat down with the label's stakeholders to discuss the future of their newest act. Bottom line, there was no future. The band's actions were inexcusable, and the punks were done. Sir John Reed cut them loose with the stroke of a pen. And the Pistols took it all in stride. Fuck EMI. The only thing that the label was good for was fodder for a new song. John Lydon and the band had successfully disrupted the system, and they walked away with a 40,000 pound signing bonus. And that was a win as far as they were concerned. But it wasn't over. Far from it. There were more labels to infiltrate, more idols to destroy, a monarchy to overturn, an unlimited supply of chaos and anarchy. The Sex Pistols wouldn't be truly happy until they left the whole fucking world in disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this episode of Disgraceland is to be continued.
Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rock a roller.